Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance your physical and emotional well-being and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that living in community is the most effective and healthiest way for us human beings to live. We like doing things together. We are basically cooperative, collaborative animals. We like doing all kinds of things together, whether it's book clubs or sewing clubs or golf clubs or bowling clubs, all kinds of things. We like inventing things together. We like writing things together. We like, we love eating together. We just love sitting around in small groups and eating food together. That's who we are. That's who we've always been. Going way back to the caves, we are tribal animals. And when we know everyone in the community by face, by at least by face, if not by name, we just love being together. However, we must also be extremely aware of the fact that a very small percentage of us are extremely different. These people are predators. These people who, when we came out of the caves, had the biggest club. These people then went on to be tribal chieftains. They went on to create little towns and cities, and they were the ones who, quote, ruled us. Eventually, these people formed larger territories that became kingdoms, and they gave themselves the name kings. And when they were kings, they didn't have citizens, they had subjects, and they subjected everybody under them to their very whims. And this group has been with us right from the beginning, as well of, as all of us who are friendly collaborators. Go back to the Egyptian times when the pharaohs ruled 99% of the population. Fast forward into history. The Greeks and the Romans tried democracy and republic, but they were eventually overthrown. You remember Caesar crossed the Rubicon and changed the republic into an empire. Move forward into history and you'll see other examples of these dominator predators, be they Napoleon, what Genghis Khan, 20th century Mussolini, Hitler, 21st century now Bolsonaro, Trump. These are people who would have us be subjects again and not citizens. We must be alert and aware and vote. At all times, we must establish our right to vote and continue to vote so that we live as a free people, not as subjects under rulers. In the words of one of my great heroes, Thomas Jefferson, eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, I'm pleased to have with us Susan Seller, who's coming to us all the way from Zurich, Switzerland. Good morning, Susan. Hi, Richard. It's afternoon here, actually, late afternoon. Good afternoon, Susan. So, you told me right before we started, 
that you had a list of things that you wanted to talk about. Were you able to find your list? I have my list, but it's kind of changed a little because now, after what I hear you say, I'd like to talk a little bit about direct democracy, which is what we have in Switzerland, where we vote all the time. We don't just vote to get a president or not. We vote whether we're going to build a new school or whether uh, the price of milk should go up. We vote over all kinds of things, minor things, major things. I vote about six times a year, seven times a year, like that. So I agree with you. Voting is very important, and there should be more of it where you live. Yes, there should be a lot more of it. What method do you use do you, for identification? Are you are using yet fingerprints or eye no, prints? No, 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 no. We are here in Europe. Everybody is registered. When you live somewhere, you are registered at a registration office. So when I vote, the material comes to me. I seldom go to the voting office. I prefer to vote by mail. So I get an envelope, I open it up, I take out the material, I sign a card, I, I put the card back so that my address now is the sender, and I send it in. You can also go and vote in person, but everybody here who is registered and above 18 years old has the right to vote. We don't have to go and register every time. We're registered once and for, for all. So the voting material comes home to us and it may, and, and together with booklets, there are three kinds of votes. We have city votes, cantonal votes and federal votes. And we vote sometimes just on, on all three levels, sometimes just on one or two levels. It depends. So the material is sent home to us together with the explanation. It will say, uh, do you want to give an object credit of $275 million? We want to build this in this school. The people who are for it are saying this and this. The people who are against it are saying this and this. And we recommend this and this. And then you choose. You're living in a democracy. I live in a direct democracy, I think. A the only direct democracy in the world, if I'm not mistaken. Some other countries have partial direct democracy. That means that they vote more often, but not nobody votes as often as we do, for as far as I can tell. And do you also have a republic where everyone is equal before the law? Everyone is equal before the law. Marvelous. Marvelous. It really sounds like... an an outstanding example of what is possible. But of course, Switzerland is a very small country, which might make it a little easier. What's the population of uh, Switzerland? 8.8 .8 million, but, you know, America may be a big country, but the country is divided up in states. The state yes. states are divided up in counties. The counties have boroughs. At the end of the day, it's just the same. It's yes. more of an organizational task. But it doesn't yes. mean it can't be done. Agreed. Very much so. So from talking about this for a moment, just because I thought it would be interesting for the American voter to see how we do it here and how easy we have it by comparison to you who have to go and register and all this stuff, I want to talk about another segment of society who are not rulers but who are the underdogs. I'm talking about people who are marginals in some way or another. 
And I wanted to talk a little bit about the difference we have in perceiving people who have drug problems over here and the way they are still largely perceived where you are. So over here, we decided about 40 years ago, we had to make the decision. Of course, we have a procurement-related crime also when it comes to drugs, like hard drugs, I mean, like heroin or now all these opioids that are around that weren't around when I was young. It was heroin and it was a, a scourge. It, it was really bad. So they decided we have to make one big decision. Are these people criminals or are they ill? We decided that they were ill and that they needed our help. And our government created a program, which is uh, in our constitution. It's called the heroin program. In the city of Zurich, about a thousand people are on this program. They're the worst cases. They're the people who've already tried everything in terms of therapy. Nothing worked for them. So they said, okay, you can have your drug. Whatever you go and you establish with a doctor how much you need, it's not the doctor who tells you, it's you who tells the doctor. And they give you a kind of a credit card and you go and only you with this credit card can get whatever it is you need. And you have to use on the premises. You can't take it with you. That's the one caveat. You have to use it on the premises. You can't go outside with it. And then you go and some people have been going to this program for years and also even more crucial, they gave them housing. They created communal living. They created, you know, just places where people could stay so they wouldn't be out in the street. I was in Vancouver uh, three years ago in Gastown where I'd been already in the 70s. I was dead shocked where it used to be drunken people off the reservation, unhappy people. Now it's junkies lying in the street with American tourists climbing over them. I, I kid you not, it, it's like a scene out of hell. And this we have foregone by, by, by giving people a place to stay, by giving them their what they need. And lo and behold, a lot of them quit. Because for the first time in a very, very long time, they could think about it instead of running around and seeing where they could get the next shot from, whether it meant they had to steal or, or whatever, or to beg, or, or whether they had some money that they got from their families. This was their worry all day long. Where am I going to get my next fix? Where is it going to come from? How am I going to get it? So that pressure was taken away. Plus, they have the housing. Susan, and, the system that you're describing of giving the chemically dependent people their medicines, their drugs, if you will, and giving them housing is the most effective system that anybody has ever come up with in terms of cost effectiveness to the society and morale effectiveness of not having them on the streets. Unfortunately, here in the United States, we have reactionary people who will not agree with that. They see such programs as supporting these people. They say it's their living quote on the dole as, and they want to treat them as criminals. The fact that Switzerland has taken the position that these people have a mental illness rather than be criminals is, in my opinion, the proper attitude to have, and it's the most progressive. But unfortunately, 
here in the United States, we are lagging way behind due to a very obstinate group of small-minded people who do not realize the effectiveness of the methods that you're using in Switzerland. I'm very sorry to hear. I know that. And of course, here it was also a struggle. It's not like Switzerland is totally devoid of small-minded people. But here, the right and the left agreed a long, long time ago that if we don't take care of people, whether they are addicts or whether they are just social cases or people who fell through the mesh of society, they're going to be in our face in some way or another. So we decided that we want to help them. We want to make sure that they have food, that they have a place to stay. It's cheaper than to have them out. And look, look at all the homeless people you have. It's not that we don't have any problems at all. I wouldn't say that. There, there also no, is problems. I'm not you know? suggesting. I'm not suggesting that you're saying you have no problems. I'm applauding the way you're dealing with it. We have the evidence here, Susan. We have done experiments where we've taken alcoholics off the streets, put them in housing, and given them alcohol, and we have checked over the years on them. And it is a much more effective system. It's much healthier for the culture. It's much healthier for those people, and it's less expensive. Much less But expensive. And it's much less expensive. Our situation is so dire now, Susan, that in San Francisco, a man started a business where he's offering walking tours of the homeless, if you will. Walking That's really sick. Tours, it's walking tours of the homeless as if they are uh, uh, animals, animals in, in, a, a zoo. in, yeah. in a zoo. Yeah. Yeah. And guess what? He sold out overnight with subscriptions to people who want to pay to walk amongst the whole homeless and be shown how they live. It's That's disgraceful. Dis it is disgraceful. It is disgraceful. I want to tell you something, though. What happened as a result of our heroin program is that heroin has gone. The junkies who are still on the program, they're my age now. They're old. And not only that, heroin among young people is considered a loser drug. It's a loser drug. Nobody, you know, it doesn't have glamour. Of course, now the same problem is coming up with cocaine. And again, we're going to do the same thing. We're having pilot projects now in Bern coming up where we're going to give the worst. Again, it's not like we gave the heroin to everybody. People did have to, you know, meet a certain threshold. They had to try to kick without being successful. They had to make an honest effort. The same with the cocaine. They say, okay, better we give it to the worst cases, and it will also get this image of being a loser drug. Is Because cocaine making a resurgence over there? Oh, a resurgence? Are you kidding? It's everywhere. It's so See, much used. Co co cocaine, historically, has 20-year cycles. Uh, it comes into vogue. It gets popular. Then the truth about it comes out in terms of depression and anxiety and, and various, you know, impotence and various things that come from it. And it goes out of vogue. And then 20 years later, people forget and it comes back in. We've had this going on in this country since about 1880. Amazing. Yeah. I don't know about that. I know that cocaine is by far 
other than, of course, marijuana, which is used by a third of the po- a third of the population, say they have at least used used it once. The cocaine is everywhere. It goes from, uh, like you know, in the Wolf of Wall Street, it goes from from the the stock market all the way down to the street level. Workingmen use it on construction sites. It's it's everywhere. It's everywhere. Yeah, this is, this it makes you very. Um, how should I say? It makes you disregardful of other people. I don't like cocaine. I think it's it's not a good drug. It's but not okay. a good drug. It's a temporary energizer, but it it warps the mind, and our attitudes get changed. It, the, the cocaine epidemic is the direct influence of the Mexican and Colombian cartels, of course. Here too, same thing. We didn't used to have so many South Americans. They're the latest arrivals of our immigrants, and we have many. In my neighborhood, 55% are foreigners. If you go out there, you wouldn't believe that Switzerland has such a diverse neighborhood. It's really very diverse here. And the thing is, when we vote in this neighborhood, never ever have we voted one step against the foreigners. On the contrary, we embrace them. They're our neighbors. We are happy with them. Everything is sweet. I live, by the way, in a Jewish Orthodox neighborhood. Across the street from me is a shul. On Friday, I see them all there. They are dressed in traditional clothes. They're decent and nice people. We say hello to each other. We don't have uh, that much in common, but it's it's okay. What we have in common is that we're all good neighbors. So that's fine, and that's the way I feel. Of course, you know, I mean, in any society, whether it's local people, whether it's foreign people, there are always some troublemakers, and and we can't we can't say that bad things don't happen. They do. But on the whole, we are a very diverse country, and the latest people to come after the Asians, after the Africans, were the South Americans, and this increased the use of cocaine for sure. I'm not saying it's their fault. It's just the way the world is running. You know, it's just the way the cookie crumbles. That's the way it goes. So let's look at your little list and tell me what's next on your list. Well, what's next on my list? Let me put my glasses on for a second. I talked about the politics. I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, psychedelic research in Switzerland, if you don't mind. We have here in Switzerland, of course, we are the country where LSD was discovered in 1943. There was a lot of uh, beneficial therapy going on with LSD until Richard Nixon and his entourage demonized it because, of course, it was taken by people who didn't support the war in Vietnam. And uh, he made sure that it became illegal, meaning that a lot of people had to give up very meaningful research therapy they were doing. And uh, people were thrown back in this respect. And we started using psychopharmaca, which can help, but which often also turned people into vegetables, I'm sorry, I have to say. But there was a society in Switzerland that constituted itself in the 80s. They're called the Swiss Medical Society for Psycholithic Therapy. Psycholithic is another way of saying psychedelic. And um, from 1980... Well, let me tell you, as a practitioner and a clinician, we differentiate between psycholytic and psychedelic, and I'll tell you how. It's a matter of dosage, yes. Correct. It's a matter of dosage. 
when you do a light dose, when you, can talk, when you can then talk to the patient, that's considered psycholytic. When you give a larger dose and the patient closes their eyes, puts on eye shades, and goes within for the session, and there's very little conversion between the therapist and the patient, we refer to that as psychedelic. Well, psychedelic is done mostly in, the, in North America, whereas psycholithic is the European way, because it's always, well, I mean, even if you, with psychedelic therapy, there is some talking later on, I would say. It's yes. not like there's no talking happening, it's just not happening during the trip. The trip exactly. is more intense. Exactly. Which, you know, can be good or can be not so. I, I think that both methods are very valuable, personally. Yes, they are. It's just the way that they started out in Britain. Uh, Dr. Sanderson was the one who coined this this name, psycholithic, and that's the way they've been doing it. There are famous proponents to this day who work with this this way. But, for instance, when they work with LSD, they're always using high dosage at the University of Basel. There is Dr. Matthias Lichti or Professor Matthias Lichti who works with alcoholics and LSD. The, the third treatment they do, the way he describes it, they take 800 micrograms. So that's psychedelic. That's not psycholytic in terms of dosage. Micro 800 micrograms is a significant uh, Psychedelic experience. dose, yeah. Yeah, 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 very much so. Very few people take 800. So they do it. They start slow, and they or they start low and they go slow. They they have first they do it with low dosage, and then later on they increase the dosage. Don't quote me on the 800. It may be 600. I only heard him talk about it once at a conference, but I did notice that he uh, he goes for psych the psychedelic method. Of course, here they work much with MDMA and with psilocybin and also with ketamine to some extent where they even use minute doses just to free people up a little so they can talk better. Whereas, yes. you know, the psychedelic experience, of course, does not do that. Like you say, it gets people into a state where maybe they cannot verbalize, but they have images, things happen to them. Yes. I, so anyway, what I meant to say is that here in Switzerland, we never gave up quite on psychedelic therapy or psycholytic therapy. And this Swiss Medical Association for Psycholytic Therapy, they asked for exemptions from the government as soon as 1985 and started working with people. And now in our small country, we have close to 70 licensed therapists who can take can take on, so, so far it was the worst cases. I mean, shortly before you kill yourself, to say it a little bit ironically, but now they've opened up recently and they've said, our health department has said, okay, you can also take people who are not as badly off, who still have to meet the criteria because you need a permission for every single one. It doesn't mean that because you are licensed to be a therapist with psychedelics, that you can just uh, invite people to your practice and start treating them. You have to ask for permission for every single one. But I think that usually the permission is given. It's, it's, a it's a formality. If you as a therapist think that this is the patient who needs it, 
the government is not going to say, no, 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 we're not giving it to him, we're giving it to her. That's not the way it works. So there is a lot of psycholytic and even psychedelic therapy going on in this country and has been for, what, 50 years, 40 years now, 40 years almost. So it never stopped. It never really stopped. First, it was maybe a little bit underground, and then it came above ground and is very respected now. And I talk to people, all kinds of people, whether they're on the left or on the right in the United States, by the way, too. And we were at the Psychedelic Sciences Conference I was last June. And we talked at a restaurant with people who seemed quite conservative. They seemed all for it. They they had heard that it was not what they were told in the beginning. I I don't see... I think that it's usually just a small core of people, but they are the people with the largest clubs who wield the big influence. I think that on the whole, the average American doesn't think that way. I still, when I come to America, of course, I tell you, Richard, I don't talk about politics. I just leave politics aside. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to have to disagree with people. None of that. And people are kind to me very kind, whether they are left or right or whatever they are. Of course, most of the people I meet are like me. I'll concede that. But not only I go out in the street, I go out into the shops. Uh, you know, I talk to people and I'll talk to anyone, really, unless they're the kind of people who say, oh, no, this person yeah. seems dangerous to me. Then I'll cross the street. But if not, I'm not afraid of people. We don't have mass shootings here. I, I'm less scared, let's say. Did you represent a particular group when you came to Denver? Well, yes, I always represent Gaia Media, the Gaia Media Foundation. The Gaia Media Foundation was founded in 1993 by a publisher and book agent called Dieter Hagenbach. And he was also the one, together with his friend Lucius Wertmüller, to organize the big psychedelic conference that actually kicked off the psychedelic revival or made it official for the 100th birthday of Albert Hoffman in Basel. This was a fantastic conference. Of course, it didn't have the scale that the Psychedelic Sciences Conference had. We had 2,000 people, but they also came from 36 countries. We had 200 journalists there. All of a sudden, psychedelics became at least a little bit respectable again. Mm -hmm. So that's a very good thing. And that's the, that was the work of the Gaia Media Foundation. I am the editor of their monthly newsletter. The newsletter is, uh, there are two. One is in German and one is in English. The editorial. Oh, put, put me, put me on the list. I would love to get it. I will do that. I will do that, Richard. I'll be very happy to. So we give it away for free. If like everywhere, if then people want to become a member of Gaia Media, we are very happy because we don't. My uh, Dieter, who was my spouse at some point, passed away in 2016 quite unexpectedly. I had done oh, his I'm magazine. Sorry. Yes, I had done his magazine in the 70s, 80s, and I took over his newsletter so it wouldn't die with him in 2017. We inherited some money from him. The foundation did. But, you know, as, as it goes, money doesn't last forever. So we are looking for members. The more members we have, the more weight we carry. So we can continue doing what we've been doing. And what we do is we 
report now increasingly about psychedelics. We also report about positive societal change in any field. We do a lot of ecology, nature, science, culture. We try to cover the whole spectrum, but psychedelics have taken the form more and more lately as, of course, the psychedelic revival is becoming more of a reality and there is more about it in the news. What's the name of the website for the Gaia Media, please? It's called GaiaMedia.org. Thank you. GaiaMedia.org, everybody. All right. Yes. You know how Gaia is spelled? G-A-I-A. Media, you know, all in one word, .org, that's us. We have a web page in English as well. There's an English version for everything. And I hope you come and have a look. That's it. That's it. And we do love and revere the earth and try our best to, uh, yeah, to honor her as much as we can. How did you personally get so involved in psychedelic science? Well, I, you know, I was a hippie. That's how I got it. I was a hippie girl when I was young. I always like to tell people I heard about psychedelics the first time when I was 16 from a Dutch girlfriend. And she said, it's a liquid that you drip onto some sugar cubes and then you take it and you get high. We didn't know what that meant, high, but it sounded glamorous. But we didn't have any LSD, so we couldn't take any. She also said, no, you want to be careful. If you take too much, you might go crazy. But where we were in French Switzerland, there were no drugs in 1966. You know, there was nothing going on, 64 even. There was nothing going on. With, with friends, we do telepathic experiments and, and the most we could get is maybe a Ritalin pill or something, but there were, there were no psychedelics. Then when I was 20, I immigrated to Canada because I had always had a strong connection to North America, but I didn't dare to go to New York. That was too much for me. So I decided to go to Canada. I knew there was a Canadian junior college in the town where I went to school in French, Switzerland, and I had some Canadian friends. So I ended up in Toronto, and it happened to be the summer of love in Toronto, 1968. And within days, I smoked grass for the first time, I thought it was grand. I never liked alcohol. I'm, I like a glass of wine or a glass of beer. I'm not a teetotaler, but I'm not a, a drinker. So boy, this was really my drug of choice, even though the word didn't exist yet. And a few days later, I tried LSD for the first time on a Wagnerian bag, type of, of trip. It's actually funny. The people I was with, the guy liked Wagner. I had never listened to Wagner because he was Hitler's favorite musician. And I never, you know, so I didn't go for that. And I actually liked it. I was very surprised. Later, I heard that Woody Allen said that every time he heard Wagner, he felt like invading Poland. Well, he gave me that kind of feeling. It made me feel a bit invincible, you know, a very strong, assertive type of music. So that was my first and, and and i liked it and With that's what we did then yes 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 and so that's what we did that first summer we, we took a lot of lsd and tried to shop as many bourgeois people as we possibly could you know that was our thing <laughs> but then later canada. in canada in toronto 
Then later I went to college. I studied sociology and linguistics. Later yet, I went back to Europe. I was always homesick. Canada has changed now. It's become a bilingual country, at least in name and in street signs and everything. But when I was there, it was rather provincial. But what it did have going for itself, 50% of the population was under 21 at the time. So it was a very young nation. And we had a lot of advantages because of being young. There were a lot of programs for us. It was easy to go to college there. I had a very good time. I'm very grateful for the time I spent in Canada. And I still love Canada a lot. I also visited New York for the first time in those days and the United States. And, well, I've always loved North America, I must say. I'm very happy every time I come there. And I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back to Berkeley for the Conference of the Women's Visionary Council. And I'm going to be talking about what was given to me as a forte, as something to use. And that is, I am the one who found out, or not found out, but who spoke to the first woman to have taken LSD, which is uh, was Albert Hoffman's uh, labyrinth, no, lab assistant, Susie Ramstein, her name is, or Ramstein, you would say. And I happened to find her. Uh, I have a friend, Michael Horowitz, you may know him. He used to be Timothy Leary's archivist. And Michael put me up to this at this conference that I mentioned, which was called LSD, Wonder Drug and Problem Child for one, Albert Hoffman's 100th birthday. And Michael was there and he said, Suzanne, why don't you... Uh, find out more about this first woman who took LSD. The world doesn't know this yet. So we have an electronic phone book here, and I just gave him her name, and her name popped up near Basel, and I wrote her a letter. And sure enough, she called me on the phone, and she said, yes, it's me, it's me you're looking for. And she told me about her first LSD experience. And right now, I'm trying to find out more about her. It turns out she comes from a historical family. They go back to the 11th century. They were counts and barons and fascinating, a fascinating story. I was at the Novartis campus yesterday to see uh, what was going on there because they've changed their tune. They now, Albert Hoffman's book must be the best sold book in their bookstore, but 20 years ago or 30, they wanted to have nothing to do with all of that. This was something that had unfortunately been part of their history, but they, it was an embarrassment, you understand, because of the political situation. Yes. And even when I talked to Susie Ramstein, which was in 2006, she was reticent to tell me much about her family. She wanted to protect her family, and I understood that. But she did say that the trips were that she took. She, you know, everybody on Hoffman's team tried LSD at least once for research purposes. He took in, inadvertently what turned out to be quite a strong doses. Later, they dropped the doses to 100 micrograms, which we call, in the scene, we call it a party doses, because you're, you can still be yes. quite, quite awake and, exactly. and quite there. But this is the doses that they started to use in therapy because it opened people up. It was conducive yes. to you know, to therapizing them. Yes. Again, this was talk therapy. But yes. nevertheless, that's what they used. So I was back there yesterday and I found a book 
I'm holding up for you. It's in German. It's called LSD out in the country. And what it's about, it's something nobody has ever thought about. Where did the ergot come from that they used to make the derivatives that they made? Well, it was grown here in Switzerland in the Emmental, which is uh, where my family is from, incidentally. So I haven't read the book yet. I'm very happy to bring LSD back where it belongs as its origin. It belonged to us women. It belonged to the goddess Demeter. You know, it's it's a rye fungus, Claviceps purpurea. And yes. who was the one administering all of this? It was the priestesses of Demeter. It was the women. And the women have been sorely neglected in the psychedelic movement. And in of every course, movement. In every movement. Yes, you're right. In every movement. And that's what the Women's Visionary Council is about. And that's yes, what I'm, I am about. You know. I want to tell you something by coincidence. I hosted the first Women's Visionary Conference at a health sanctuary that I started two hours north of Berkeley called Wilbur Hot Springs. And Annie Harrison uh, brought the group, the first Women's Visionary Conference, to Wilbur. And all of us men had to leave the property. And then eventually they let a few of us stay. And I stayed. I should hope so. Yes. And I stayed and Rick Doblin stayed. And, uh, and it was a wonderful founding experience. It's because you're very sweet men. Rick Doblin is certainly a sweetheart. And it seems oh. to be so are you. So. But I think we want to include men. We don't want to do to them what they did to us. I'm against that. So that we would be welcome at this conference in Berkeley. I hope so. I don't know. I'll check I haven't out talked. It. I'll ask Maria Vittoria, who is my go-to person. Oh, and I just got an email from Maria Vittoria this morning. I'll, I can talk to her also. Yes, do, do. No, I, I really think that the women's movement is changing because men are as much victims of this patriarchal system that they made, you know, some of them set up, the ones with the big clubs that you mentioned, they set up this patriarchal system, which uh, substituted was substituted for what was before, which was more matrilinear. Now we have this patrilinear type of society where men rule, but it's slowly changing because women don't want to put up with this anymore. And even most men, when they think about it, they don't want to put up with it. They don't want to be slaves to their bosses. They would like to enjoy their families more and have more time to do the things that really matter in life, which are very few things after all. Most things are kind of extraneous. You could do without. You could do without, yes. you know, you don't need a title. You don't need brand clothes, brand clothes. You know, there's many things you don't need that don't matter. And I think that we want to include men and we want to help them. They are brothers. We want to help them so that we can all have a more peaceful and a more fruitful life. This is what it's really about. It's not about am I a ma man or am I a woman? And no, of course, but as you know, Suzanne, there are people like us who see all of humanity as one tribe male, female, everybody, and that we're all in this together and that we're all sharing the planet together, which we're part of. But there's another whole group of people who see it very differently. I they don't understand. See it, they, right? They don't see it as we're all in this together. They see it as we 
and they. Yes. And they, they feel like they belong to the we and everybody else is the they. These well, actually, they belong to the me. That's mainly their thing. Me, yes. me, me, to, you to know? The, to the me. That's well said. They belong to the me and then there's they. And that's what we're struggling with at this time in history in our country. Always, not only at this time in history. Now I have to say it too, Richard, don't yes. you think? Yes, you're correct. It seems a little more so now because the United States seems more divided now than since the Civil War. But I'm starting to think, Suzanne, that we are still fighting the Civil War in this country, that the North might have defeated the South physically, but the North did not change the ideology of the South. And I believe those same people are the people who are following Trump and the same people who are reactionary and who are against progress and who are taking a me attitude. I think we're still fighting the civil war. Well, that's possible, but I also think that these me people are found to be found in any strata of society anywhere in the world. It's not a matter of North and South. I don't think that uh, the South, the Southerners in America bear the brunt of all of this. I, I, I think that they are, there are people who think like us and people who don't think like us. But the trouble is that we used to be like in my society, people, it's also becoming more divisive, by the way, but we still sit together. I have many friends who don't share my opinions on everything. Many. We establish and then we, okay, let's talk about something else. We can still be friends, you know, we can yeah. be friends. That's what really matters. And that has gone lost with these people like a Mr. Trump who just are dividing people, which is not okay. I don't care that they don't, should not think the way I think. You know, thoughts are free. Anybody can think whatever they pretty well want to. And if people want less state or they want more state, they're perfectly entitled to think so. But what I don't like is everyday people having the idea that their neighbors are bad and they, they're the only good ones. I think that's really the, the stuff that you want to work at. Yes. people, you Agreed. know. And I think what's, that it will, what, please. What's next on your list? What's next on my list? Let's have a look. Well, I already okay. talked about a lot. Oh, the last thing on my list, and then you have to find some subjects that we can talk about. The last thing on my list is that I, in the middle of the pandemic, started a psychedelic salon in Zurich. I started it right where I'm sitting now in my living room. We were allowed to congregate with masks. We were allowed to be up to 12 people at some point. It varied. At first it was five, then it was, then they realized, you know, there are families that are bigger than five people. So they enlarged it a little. And when I started the psychedelic there, psychedelic salon, we were 12 people in my living room. And, you know, we started talking about psychedelics. Since then, it's moved to the Cabaret Voltaire. The Cabaret Voltaire is the birthplace of the Dada art movement of the earliest 20, early 20th century. It's a very nice place. It's, it's a place that manages to be intimate and worldly at the same time. And we Zoom. That's what we do. We hold the salon once a month there. And we hold it also once a month in Basel, in the premises of, of the Gaia Media Foundation. We have this lounge. We have a, a large media library. 
archives with about 3,000 books plus another 2,000 books that are strewn around the country of another library that have become incorporated, and that's where we meet. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk about all kinds of things. This time, on the 14th of September, the season starts up again. Every year we take a two-month break in the summer because I need it. And uh, then we start up again, and the first time I usually do the talking, and I'll be talking about my friend Terence McKenna and about psilocybin. And after that, we have a, every month a different speaker. Sometimes we show a movie. We do all kinds of things there. And it also always has an artistic component because, after all, Cabaret Voltaire is a museum. It's a museum and a club type of room where these Dadaists used to perform absurd theater and absurd poetry. And we've kept a little bit of that in that usually there is some oh. art art involved as part we, we it's a marriage of psychedelics and art can That's i zoom in well am i welcome to zoom in from the united states definitely everybody is welcome to zoom in the thing is you have to be on my mailing list because i send out an invite for every salon about 10 days ahead of time so around the 4th of september now i'll send out the invite for the one in zurich and a week later the one in basel but in Basel, we don't Zoom. Basel is smaller. So far, I've never done any press work. I'm about to do some press work. Maybe after that, it will explode in Basel too. In Zurich, I was in the, the city city's largest paper. They did a big spread on me. Very nice of them. And we have a lot of people. So I, I mail out the invitation. It has a Zoom code and anywhere from all over the world, people can Zoom in. And there are, in fact, people from South America, from Greece, from various places, even, you know, Swiss people, if they can't come, it's too far or, you know, they, they can't come. They can always Zoom or they can record it and look at it later. And this Cabaret Voltaire only has room for up to 100 people. And that's squeezing if we're a hundred people in there. So it's always full or almost always full, weather permitting. And it's a, a really nice atmosphere. I give everybody a name tag when they come so they know how to talk to each other. We already meet an hour before the speaking starts and we launch the Zoom at seven o'clock. And then it lasts about until nine, nine thirty. There's a bar. Well, we take little look- breaks. It's nice. I look forward to it. Please put me, I'd be honored if you put me on your mailing list. I would be very happy to, Richard. Very, very happy. So how much more time do we have? Well, it's uh, almost an hour. We can go a little longer. I have a question I'd like to ask you. And that is, tell us what you consider to be the most important of what you have learned from psychedelics. Well, for me, the most important is that we are all one. I think that's really, for me, was very important. I was an only child. I was often lonely. LSD relieved me of that loneliness. I know that we are all connected. I know that we all have a common origin and that we are all one. And I don't believe in us and them. I think that they are us and we are them. Uh, There are bad parts in me. There are good parts in me. It's up to me what I want to bring out. And what it also 
taught me is that what, after all, is said and done, what counts most in life is to love and to give. I really believe in that. I believe in giving. I believe in loving. I, uh, I'm a family person. I'm an elder now. I have three grandchildren. And, you know, this has come to me, this late career in psychedelics after a long hiatus has become as a, as a huge gift. And I am, I am very happy. And, and I think that that's what we're here for, to, to learn to be happy people so that we can make the world a happier and a better place. And all of this I owe to LSD, I must say. It helped me tremendously. Other things also helped me. Meditation has helped me. Uh, reading Ram Dass's book, Remember Be Here Now, when I was young, that tremendously helped me. I have had many teachers. I've written a book about some of them that's about to come out in German. I'm looking for an American publisher. The interesting thing is I wrote it as five biographies with my own experiences interspersed, and everybody says, there should be more of you. There should be more of you. So this is a very funny experience for me. And I, I, I get the exact same reaction to my books. Oh, there should be more of me. And I'm, I'm trying to put in a little bit more in the next books that are coming. Maybe I can introduce you to my publisher here in the United States, if you'd like. It, isn't it Inner Traditions? Yes, that's correct. My manuscript is with Inner Traditions. They've already oh. said from the start, I happen to know Eyud Sperling. This is a funny story. Uh, at the book fair in 1983, I guess, my boyfriend at the time, Hagenbach, he gave me the task of trying to see whether I could secure the rights for Sexual Secrets, which was a book by Inner Traditions. And I ran into the hallway somewhere in this huge thing that's the Frankfurt Book Fair. I ran into this Ehud Sperling and I said, oh, you know, we're really interested in the book. And he said, oh, no, we're going to give it to Playboy because Playboy uh, has promised us a, a big spread and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know what took me, Richard, but I looked at him. I said, well, I turned the editor of Penthouse onto LSD. And he said, LSD, you've got the book. <laughs> and that's how we got it. And that's how we got to be friends. And I now it's a youth's friend, a son who has taken over. And I went to talk to him at the site. Mohar. Mohar. Mahar. 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 That's right. I, I Mahar. had dinner with him. I had dinner with him in Denver. Very nice person. Very, Very nice. nice person. Yeah. So he, they have promised me an appraisal and I send in my manuscript and they got back to me and they said that they felt my book deserved a full review. And if they want me to write more about myself, okay, I will. But I was actually saving more about myself for my next book because the first one is about male psychedelic pioneers, though there's lots of women in there as well. And this book will be about female psychedelic pioneers. Uh, terrific. People like Susie Rammstein, like Anita Hoffman, not to forget Albert's wife, who very bravely did everything he did. Then there's, of course, Betty Eisner. There are people like Joan Halifax, Jean Houston, or Margaret Kuttner. I have to see how much I can find out about, of course, Jean and Joan, I both know it's not so difficult. They're both still alive. But the others, Anita Hoffman, there's her family that we know. 
So it's easy to find out. The others, maybe there is too little information. But I'm also plotting with Maria Vittoria to maybe write an encyclopedia of women in psychedelics because there are so many now. And then we can just do a short bit for every everybody. Then we don't need to know their whole life and, and everything else. So those are some of the things that I'm planning on doing. And I'm waiting for inner traditions to give me an answer. I don't think they'll take the book because they had a book by Rosemary Woodruff Leary. Remember her? Psychedelic yes, Refugee. I thought it was a good book, but again, there. The same. It should have been more about her and less about yeah. Leary, much more, because there's so much about Leary already. Should have been more about her. She was this crazy woman who, after being a fugitive for, I think, 27 years, came back to America by swimming, <laughs> by swimming in a bikini off a boat to the coast of Florida. And that's how she came back. And only later, then, that crazy? And only later then, did she have a lawyer inquire with the FBI whether they were still interested in her? And they said, no, 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 no. All long gone. And she finally resurfaced. Amazing. We would have liked to hear more of those. I would have liked to hear more of those stories, I must say. They were, what a great woman. But the book didn't sell so well, probably because younger people don't know who she is. And here I am, a total unknown who's bursting onto the American scene, Grace, thanks to you and thanks to Maria Vittoria and the Women's Visionary Council. And I have no idea whether I'll ever be able to publish this book. The main thing oh, is... Oh, no, 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 no. You will be able to publish this book. We will help you. Well, thank you we very, very much. I'm also in contact with the Psychedelic Literacy Council, so it's happening. No, no. Oh, that- if, if, if by any chance John and Ehud don't take you at Inner Traditions, we'll find another publisher, I'm sure. I hope so. That would be very nice. I hope to come to the United States often. No, definitely. Stay in touch with me on that, and I'll do everything I can to help, really. Thank you very, very much, Richard. That's most kind of you. Thank and you. And I, I, look, I look forward to meeting you maybe in Berkeley when you come for the Women's Visionary Conference. I hope so. She, Maria Vittoria has asked me if I'm interested to come up to the ranch. And I wrote to her, I said, well, maybe it's close to where Richard is. I, I, right now I have oh. a blackout on your place. What did you say it was? Wilbur Hot Springs. No, no, not the Hot Springs. That would be fantastic. I oh, love he, Hot Springs. Uh, where I am right now is on the Pacific Ocean in Mendocino County. I love Mendocino. Isn't it beautiful there? Oh, it's spectacular. Yeah. But you mentioned the place that I can't remember the name of right now. And I was wondering whether it was maybe near this ranch. I have no idea. So I'll find out when I get there. Actually, Maria Vittoria, if she's going up to the hog farm, which is not far, Wavy Gravy's place, I, I bet that's where it is because she used to live there. Okay. It's very close. It's very close to me. You could both drop in. It would be wonderful to host. That would you be very, very nice. Thank I'll you very much. About, I'll talk to her about it. That would be sure. very nice. I'd like that. Well, anyway. So, before we end, look down at your list again. See if there's anything you want to add. That Not you really. Want I've said to- it all. Okay. Well, one thing I might say is I love people. I believe in people. I trust that we can all really make a difference if we only want to. And I really am very happy that I should get an American audience, thanks to you. 
And if anybody wants to be in touch, please do. I'll answer everything I can. How do they reach you, Suzanne? Well, I have an email address, Suzanne at GaiaMedia.org. Very easy. easy. Yes, very easy. Suzanne at org. The only thing is that I write my name S-U-S-A-N-N-E, not with a Z. Many people think of the French Suzanne. I'm a German Suzanne, S-U-S-A-N-N-E. N-N-E. Yes. Okay. It's been wonderful being with you. I look forward to seeing you again. Me too, Richard. I'm looking very much forward to seeing you in person, meeting you, and thank you so very much from the bottom of my heart for giving me this opportunity. Thank you. Very welcome. And thank you, gentle listeners, for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I remind you that we broadcast at 9 o'clock every Tuesday morning, but in addition to that, you can go on the archive at any time, at your convenience, and all of our programs are open source. That means no charge to you. All the wonderful, distinguished people that we've had over the years are there for you to listen to. Just go to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. So, until next time, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.